Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 56, The Devil at Fromel's. In the last episode, we saw the BEF launch their successful assaults on the Byzantine Ridge. In a stunning example of Rawlinson's bite-and-hold strategy, 6,000 meters of the German second position were in British hands by midday, proving their doubters wrong about their ability to conduct large set-piece battles. However, their mastery of the ridge was not unchallenged. To the west and east, High and Delville Woods remained in German hands, and without them, Rawlinson's grip was far from secure. Today, we'll be changing course a bit to look at two individual battles, both of which took place at the same time, but on opposite ends of the Western Front, one at Fromel's, the other at Delville Wood. Although rarely mentioned in the same sentence, the battles of Fromel's and Delville Wood share a lot in common. Not only are they steeped in controversy, making them great topics for historical debate, but they have also seen a resurgence in public interest. In 2009, a mass grave containing the bodies of 249 English and Australian servicemen was discovered near Fromel's, resulting in one of the largest reinterments since the armistice. The discovery caught the public's imagination, opening the floodgates to speculation and opinion. Fromel's is rightly known as Australia's deadliest 24 hours of the war, because more men were killed or wounded than on any single day at Gallipoli. The eight months at Gallipoli had cost the Australians 8,700 dead, while one day at Fromel's had cost 5,500. The terrible butcher's bill aside, there are other reasons why Fromel's and Delville Wood are linked. First, both battles are defined by their use of colonial troops, the Australians at Fromel's and South Africans at Delville Wood. Because it was colonial troops who took the brunt of the fighting, some historians have gone to great lengths to separate the experience of colonial troops from those of the home islands, which unfortunately has led to some distortion and misunderstanding. Some of the most vociferous critics, such as Patrick Lindsay and Simon Sebag Montefiore, have leveled charges of criminal negligence and outright fratricide against the British generals. Their argument being that the generals knew the battles would be costly, and wanting to spare the lives of homegrown English boys, ordered Australians and Afrikaners to fight instead. To make such an argument is understandable, of course, especially when dealing with such horrific numbers. Australia achieved federation in 1901 and South Africa, nominal independence in 1910. So for these burgeoning countries, the loss of so many young men was bound to cause some revulsion, and a desire to place blame. The Australians lost 5,500 men at Fromel's, while the South Africans went into Delville Wood with 3,150 officers and men. Five days later, they marched out with 720. Much like the first day of the Somme, these numbers alone have caused a real stumbling block for those trying to understand why the battles were fought in the first place. To the popular mind, casualty count and conduct of battle are locked in an unshakable bond, making difficult any sort of dispassionate analysis. What I intend to do today is to offer an examination of Fermel's and Delville Wood from a 1916 point of view, 
which is the only way we are going to arrive at any sort of balanced analysis. Why were they fought? What were the planners thinking? And what went wrong? Are questions that can only be answered by examining what was known during that terrible July 100 years ago. So the plan is to alternate between the two while highlighting some of the key misinterpretations along the way. We can start anywhere, but since my notes began with Fromel's, it seems right to start there. Although Fromel's is often associated with the Somme campaign, the battle took place 80 kilometers to the north. The village of Fromel's boasts a population of just under a thousand, and is located atop the Albert Ridge, about 16 kilometers west of Lille. During the Great War, the Albert Ridge was of critical importance to the German defenses. Rising 36 meters above sea level, the ridge, once described by historian Peter Peterson as a flattened speed bump on an ironing board, provided the Germans total observation of the Allied positions. It also gave them access to the roads and railways to the interior. Earlier in the war, Anglo-French forces attempted to capture the ridge to no avail. The French tried in late 1914, followed by two British attacks in May 1915. None of these efforts brought meaningful gain, and the lines remained unchanged. After two years of relative inactivity, Fromel's became a quiet sector on the Western Front. With the focus of the war shifting to the Meuse and Somme for 1916, those at Fromel's were happy with their isolated stretch. Although enemy raids and artillery exchanges remained a regular occurrence, those assigned to the Little Sector were relieved to find their biggest challenge was combating the monotonous duties of trench life. And when they heard the stories coming from the south, few men were eager to switch places. As the Battle of the Somme entered its third week, Douglas Haig began looking for ways to stem the tide of German reinforcements. Given the operational context of 1916, this was sound strategy. It made sense to press the Germans on all fronts, to contribute to the wearing out of the troops by denying respite for the Germans coming in and out of the Somme. In the most optimistic scenario, this may even cause German resistance to crack. In this was the genesis of the Battle of Fromelles. After meeting with his army commanders, Hay concluded that the best option for a diversionary attack was near the Aubert Ridge, which meant it fell under the jurisdiction of First Army, commanded by Charles Monroe. Haig chose this spot because intelligence reports indicated the Germans were combing Lille for divisions to send to the Somme. On July the 5th, Haig's intelligence officer, John Charters, informed Haig the latest group of Somme POWs contained members of the elite 13th Jaegers, who were seen first operating out of Lille. This was solid information, and as C&C, Haig would have been negligent had he let the news of the POW slip by. Fortunately, Haig did not have to wait long for a plan. The commander of First Army's 11th Corps, Lieutenant General Richard Haking, was already at work devising a scheme. Richard Haking, also known as Dicky to his intimates, is perhaps the most maligned British officer after Haig, especially in the eyes of Australian historians. Born on January 24, 1862 in Halifax, Haking enjoyed a productive pre-war career. Despite his later reputation as a dolt, Haking was once a rising star in the British Army, once considered by some an expert on troop development and tactics. Haking was, Haig thought, his sort of general, out to win and aggressive. 
Hicking's firm belief that well-trained and well-motivated troops were the decisive factor in battle has left him open to fierce rebuke by later writers. But the most damaging accusation leveled at Haking is that he possessed some kind of fatal attraction with the Yalbear Ridge. Now I personally fell into this trap at the end of the last episode, when I said Haking dreamed of securing the ridge. I jumped the gun on that one and want to correct my mistake now. Haking's plan was just one of the many proposals floated by the various corps commanders that summer. The fact that he already had a plan does not indicate obsession. It shows his diligence and productivity. Generals make plans for their zones of responsibility. This is standard military practice. Since Haking was responsible for the Albert Ridge, part of his job was coming up with a plan of attack in the event he was tapped by his superiors. So far from being an obsessive weirdo, Haking was being pragmatic. He wanted to be ready when his moment arrived. Formel's is a difficult battle to sift through. Although simple on paper, it is easy to lose sight of its true intention. For many, the disproportionate loss of life to captured ground is enough to judge it an outright failure. But if we are to come to grips with what occurred on July 19th, we must shed our preconceptions that the battle was somehow doomed from the beginning. No general of a modern democratic nation sets out to destroy his own army. So without once minimizing the horrible conditions of the battlefield, we need to consider what Haking was planning to do, and how conditions beyond his control affected his plans. When Monroe, Haking, and Hag sat down to discuss the situation, Hag made two things abundantly clear. The first, 11th Corps was forbidden to attack the Albert Ridge. Formel's itself, on the south corner of the ridge, was far enough from the main defenses, and was thus deemed an acceptable target. The second thing Haig pressed upon his staff was that the decision to attack would be left to the Army and Corps commander. Monroe and Haking had the final word on whether to proceed. In many ways, Formel's was to be a carbon copy of the ill-fated Gum Corps feint on July the 1st. It was, from its very conception, a diversion, designed to pin German reserves in the area, preventing them from being sent to the Somme. Haking planned to attack the Formel salient from the north and south, using two inexperienced divisions, the 61st 2nd Midland and 5th Australian. Of these two divisions, the Australians received the lion's share of attention. Like the South Africans at Delville Wood, this was to be their first battle on the Western Front. Although the Australians were battle-hardened from their time at Gallipoli, Fighting on the Western Front was a different beast altogether. After Gallipoli, the Australian Expeditionary Force, or AEF, was relocated to Egypt for refitting, where it was soon expanded from two to five divisions. Gallipoli veterans were dispersed among the new units to provide desperately needed experience. The 5th Division was created during this expansion. However, 5th Division's training was handicapped by a lack of supplies and equipment. While preparing in the dry desert heat for the damp, muddy conditions of France, the AEF lacked adequate stocks of artillery or access to modern weapons such as trench mortars, grenades, flamethrowers, and aircraft. Because of this, most of their training was focused on fitness, small unit tactics, and marksmanship. Australian gunners were trained in theory, but few ever managed to get in more than a few ranging shots before being recalled. After four months in Egypt, 
the AEF was deployed to the Western Front, where they took over part of the line from the 38th Welsh. Haking immediately faced a problem which so often arises in diversionary attacks, which is how to convince your opponent the attack is serious while limiting the objectives of your own forces. Launching a successful feint can often require months, if not years of planning. Haking did not have the luxury of time, but contrary to popular belief, he had enough firepower to show the Germans he meant business. Haking had scraped together one gun per every 8 meters of front, including 40 60-pounders and 238 18-pounders, with a ration of 1,000 rounds per gun. Like a gum corps, there was no effort to conceal this arsenal. This was because Haking decided it was best to conduct his build-up in broad daylight, in full view of the German sentries. This was a high-risk strategy, and at first glance it seems rather stupid. But if he wanted the Germans' attention, he had to give the impression he was planning something big. It was a risky choice, but not unreasonable given the circumstances. Furthermore, the weather refused to cooperate. Fog and thunderstorms had grounded the RFC on and off for nearly a fortnight, which meant few air operations were flown to assist artillery registration. All of this compounded the artillery issue significantly. Not only did the gunners lack accurate maps of the German batteries, there was no way of determining the accuracy of their ranging shots. Nevertheless, Haking and his artillery staff remained confident. Although aware of this shortcoming, it was not enough to justify cancelling the attack. Two days before the assault, Haking finally had a workable plan. The attack was divided into two phases, maneuver and assault. In the maneuver phase, the 61st Midland and 5th Australian divisions would line up on opposite sides of the Sugarloaf Salient, at the center of the ridge, the 61st on the south and 5th Australian to the north. Two companies from each of the six brigades would move into no man's land prior to the assault. Flanking units would set up defensive blocks, while the centers would bring forward stores to reinforce captured positions. Against standard procedure, Haking wanted all three brigades to attack abreast. It was expected this would generate enough momentum for the infantry to capture their limited objectives. The only area of potential confusion remained the interdivisional boundary in which the recipe for disaster lay. Haking failed to consider one fundamental flaw. At the Sugarloaf Salient, the left battalion of the 61st Division and right battalion of the 5th Australian were attacking on converging lines. The 61st were given the task of securing the salient, while the Australians would pinch off the nose by capturing the German trenches behind it. This was standard procedure when dealing with a salient. However, Haking failed to create a unified command system. Haking should have given sole responsibility to one division, which in turn should have assigned a brigade to take it. The Sugarloaf salient was the dominant feature of the battlefield, so why Haking let the divisions act at cross purposes remains an unanswered question. Instead, the divisions would attack the same objective independently from each other. As a result, tactical cooperation and coordination was made immeasurably more complicated. If things went awry, there would be no one to hit the stop button. As the forces at Fromelles prepared their assault, 
another British formation was marching into the abyss. 80 kilometers south, the 1st South African Brigade approached Delville Wood. As you'll remember from last day, the assault on Byzantine Ridge played out as scripted. By the end of the day, 4th Army occupied a large stretch of the German positions, but there remained a few areas of contention, notably High Wood and Delville Wood. I should mention that we will not be discussing High Wood today. We'll leave that story for another episode. The importance of Delville Wood lay in its strategic positioning. If the British wished to capitalize on their July 14th success, Delville Wood had to be taken. Securing it would allow the British to unlock the Jinji Guelmon Ridge, thus clearing the way for the French to advance along the Longueval Jinji Road. Haig was under immense pressure to capture Delville Wood, and had Rawlinson send out orders just after midnight on July the 15th. For the young men of the South African Brigade, thousands of kilometers from home, the approach to Delville Wood was like a journey into hell. Private Dudley Meredith, a 21-year-old serving in 3rd Battalion, recalls the experience. Quote, As we marched up the road to Longueval, the dawn began to break. It was dark and quiet. Longueval consisted of smoking heaps of bricks and shell holes filled with water, but we could still see what had once been a main street. Numbers of dead Scotties were laying about, and a little way down the street was a large number of dead Germans, most of them horribly mutilated. End quote. As they dug themselves in a semicircle along the eastern edge of the wood, the South Africans were amazed at how well preserved it was. The wood had not been shelled much, Private Meredith recalled. In the stately trees and leafy undergrowth, in the hazy dawn of a midsummer morning, had such a peaceful look. Except for the quiet tramp of men, all was still. When the South Africans settled into place before 5 a.m., it marked the end of a long, exhausting journey. The 1st South African Brigade had been raised in early 1915. At full strength, it consisted of 160 officers and 5,648 other ranks, divided across four battalions. The bulk of its recruits were civilians and ex-servicemen, including some former Boers who had fought against the British in previous conflicts. Having left Cape Town in August 1915, the brigade embarked on an epic journey, which included a stint in Egypt, where they fought in the Senussi campaign against the Turks and Arabs. After a year in the desert, the brigade was finally shipped to France, where they were employed as working parties, carrying shells, ammunition, and rations to the artillery positions in the area. Delville Wood was to be the South Africans' introduction to the Western Front. Fromels and Delville Wood began within days of each other. Fromels began on July 19th, while the assault on Delville Wood kicked off in the early morning of July 15th. At Delville Wood, the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd Battalions advanced to the tree line at 7am. The sun was peeking over the horizon, bathing the silent wood in a warm orange glow. Everything was perfectly quiet and still, recalled Private Jack Carstens. I even noticed the birds flittling from tree to tree. To the soldier next to me, I remarked, this is easy. I wonder where the Hun is hiding. The brigade attacked the wood from three sides. 1st Battalion from Longueval, while 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Battalions attacked from the north, west, and south. 
the objective being to occupy the wood with the greatest amount of force in the shortest amount of time. Running through the wood was a lattice of roadways which divided the wood into blocks. In peacetime, these rides allowed the locals to navigate the wood with ease, but in wartime they took on a tactical importance. Not only did the ride serve as important communication lines for the British, they also allowed the Germans to divide the wood into defensible blocks. Like a game of battleship, the wood was divided into 11 such blocks, each one already sighted for artillery. At a moment's notice, the German gunners could direct their fire from one block to another, defeating any attackers with devastating shellfire. The plan for the Germans was to let the South Africans enter the wood, and then pick them off one block at a time. Private Karsten's intuition was right on the money, because as the lead battalions cleared the hill, they were slammed with machine gun fire. Officers were picked off by snipers operating in the treetops as shells exploded overhead. Although stunned by the eruption of violence, the South Africans were able to rally. By 8 a.m., 3rd Battalion had secured a toehold just south of Prince's Street, the longest ride which divided the wood north and south. On the south side of Prince's Street, 2nd Battalion was making steady progress up Buchanan Street, while 4th Battalion advanced on Campbell Street Trench in the southeast. With a foothold secure, the South Africans began to push the Germans out from four sides. Using the rides as cover, they surrounded the Germans and destroyed them with grenades and bayonets. The fighting was chaotic and savage. The thick undergrowth caused men to stumble, barbed wire traps snagged unsuspecting Afrikaners, while bullets tore apart trees and lapped up the earth. Private James Simpson of 4th Battalion described the difficulty of fighting through the wood in the northern perimeter. Quote, Shells whistled through the trees and burst with awful cracks all around. Men were falling fast and everyone was calling for stretcher bearers. We struggled through the wood, being tripped up almost every step of the way by the thick undergrowth, barbed wire, and falls into shell holes. The boys were falling left and right. Quote. By 2 p.m. on July 15th, the South Africans had pushed the Germans into a corner. All that remained was to capture the northwest side of the wood in order to seal off the entrance from Longueval. However, the South Africans soon encountered a problem all too common with forested warfare. Attacking woods presents special problems. If you enter one part while the enemy is in another, it is difficult for either side to initially shell in support of fear of killing their own men. However, if you succeed in taking all or some distinct parts of the wood, the enemy can organize a barrage that will help drive you out. This is exactly what the Germans did. The first German counterattack struck the South Africans the night of July 16th, and from here on out, the Battle of Delville Wood took on a terrifying new dimension. Attempts to secure the northwest corner on the 16th and 17th failed, and on both nights, the South Africans endured horrific shelling, including gas shells, which added a new layer of misery. By now, the tranquil setting of the wood had been transformed by four days of intensive fighting. The foliage had all been stripped away, leaving only shattered stumps intermingled with blurred trench lines. Private John Lawson, from D Company 3rd Battalion, recalls the moments of calm before the shelling resumed. Quote, it was as if night ever refused to give way to day. A drizzling rain was falling in an atmosphere unstirred by a breath of wind. 
Smoke and gas clung to and polluted the air, making the canopy impervious to light. What a contrast was this Tuesday morning to the previous Saturday when we first entered, and what was then a beautiful sylvan scene. But now, everywhere, a dreary waste. End quote. Private Lawson would not have long to muse on his dwellings. At 8 a.m. on July 18th, the Germans unleashed a barrage which rivaled Verdun in its horror and intensity. Explosions, flames, and concussive shockwaves tore up the remaining trees, sending wood splinters as sharp as shrapnel. 300 South Africans were killed, vaporized by the shells. At its peak, 400 shells per minute hit the South African positions, turning the wood into a belching hellfire. Private Ernest Solomon, who was with 3rd Battalion, recalls the shock of the morning barrage. Quote, The air was filled with the shrieks of shells that rained upon us unceasingly. The atmosphere seemed to rent asunder by the endless success of terrific explosions. Sand and stones showered over us, clattering onto our steel helmets. The earth shook. Trees crashed over. It was a raging inferno. End quote. The South Africans were demonstrating a true backs-to-the-wall attitude. But without reinforcements, their hold on Delville Wood was less than guaranteed. As the fighting at Delville peaked, Haking prepared his feint out for Mel's. On the eve of battle, Haking told the assembled troops, quote, I know you will do your best for the sake of our lads who are fighting down south. In truth, the South Africans could have used any help they could get. Unfortunately, it would not be from Formel's. The assault began in the late afternoon of July 19th, preceded by a day-long artillery barrage. Instead of climbing over the parapet, the attacking infantry made use of sally ports, which are underground tunnels leading into no man's land. Although designed to protect attacking infantry, they ended up becoming death traps. The Germans were all too aware of these tunnels, and had zeroed their guns on the exits. As the infantry filed out, they were sitting ducks. Bunched up to abreast, they were hit with blistering MG fire from the ridge. Wave upon wave fell dead at the mouth, and those who managed to escape were caught by artillery. The tunnels were soon a nightmare. You could not turn back because the crush behind you kept pushing you forward. The only option was to head down the dark passageway, straight into the jaws of German bullets. One witness described the opening moments as a bloody holocaust. The congestion in the tunnels meant the two divisions were already behind schedule, and with no one making progress, confusion soon spread. To salvage the advance, the divisional commanders ordered men to use the parapet instead. Those who did were immediately destroyed by machine guns and shrapnel. Hundreds were mown down in the flicker of an eyelid, like great rows of teeth knocked from a comb, recalled one witness. But still, the line went on, thinning and stretching. Wounded wriggled into shell holes or were hit again. Men were cut in two by streams of bullets that swept like whirling knives. And still, the line went on. On the Midlanders' front, the attack was disintegrating into chaos. The gunners were firing short of their targets, depriving the infantry of much-needed artillery support. Friendly fire was widely reported, and at least one company had run too far ahead and was obliterated by its own barrage. The Australians on the left fared little better, 
the 14th and 8th Brigades were fragmented by unsuppressed fire from the Sugarloaf Salient. However, the assaulting companies were able to cross no man's land at an appalling cost. Thinned as a result of the carnage, the depleted companies nevertheless jumped the trenches, engaging the Germans in crazed, hand-to-hand contests. Once inside the German network, however, the usual problems arose. Disproportionately high casualties among the officer corps, many of whom were Gallipoli veterans, meant command passed to NCOs with no combat experience. As an example, 53rd Battalion Commander, Lieutenant Colonel I.B. Norris, was killed alongside his entire staff when crossing no man's land. Command of the battalion was then given to a captain who had been with the unit for just two weeks. However, the success of the attack hinged on whether the Sugarloaf salient was captured. Although it was reported that the 14th and 8th Brigades were now 150 meters deep in the German network, they ran the risk of being cut off without the salient being neutralized. Haging had assigned the task of capturing the salient to the 184th and 15th Brigades, which had attacked the salient without guidance of a unified command. As Roger Lee writes, if the attack of the 184th Brigade was the crucial attack of the battle, it was the 15th Australian Brigade which would be most affected by the outcome. In other words, if 114th failed, there would be nothing to stop the Australians from marching straight into a slaughter. Tragically, this is exactly what happened. The opening phase of the 184th had been a disaster. Casualties among the officers and NCOs left many of the waves leaderless, spelling catastrophe for the inexperienced infantry. The 1st Bucks, part of 184th Brigade of the 61st Midlanders, were cut to ribbons as they assembled to attack, while 4th Battalion of the Berkshire Light Infantry were sent scrambling back to their trenches. Reinforcements were sent in at 6pm, but were immediately chewed up by shrapnel. The Midlanders component, which made up half the attacking force, had failed from the outset. This left the 15th Australian Brigade to attack without knowledge of what transpired. Since Haking failed to impose a unified command structure, no one was able to call off the Australian attack. With the Midlanders defeated, the Germans could concentrate the salient's defenses against this lone brigade. At 6.02pm, the 15th Brigade began their assault, with 59th Battalion on the right closest to the salient, and 60th to the left. When the barrage lifted, the formations were hit by counterfire on both sides. However, the Australians benefited from favourable terrain. Their approach had been protected by broken ground. The folds provided excellent cover, allowing the Australians to close within 150 metres of the German positions. But the closer they got, the less reliable the ground. Just before the German trench, the ground levelled into a small plain, leaving the Australians totally exposed. The 59th and 60th were decimated, shot to pieces by machine guns or disintegrated by artillery. As per usual, some men were able to lunge into the first line trench, but with little support on the way, they were forced to evacuate soon after. There was little to support the advancing troops. The 15th Brigade Machine Gun Company, positioned between the 59th and 60th, had been wiped out. Without machine gun support, the Australians were forced to rely on their artillery. But as was happening at Delville Wood, the close proximity of the lines meant the gunners were reluctant to fire, for fear of shelling their own men.
the full-scale tragedy of events was laid bare by 7.20 that evening. Within the hour, casualties among officers and NCOs had thinned the hope of success. In 20 minutes of action, 59th Battalion lost 35 out of 39 officers. By 7.45pm, the impetus of attack had evaporated, and the Sugarloaf salient remained in German hands. Surviving British units were cut off with no chance of relief. Then, just before 8 o'clock, German counterattacks began to pound the British back. The fighting rose to a crescendo. By 3.45 the following morning, a final assault by the Bavarians ejected the remaining British troops. But not before, 32nd Battalion from 8th Brigade staged a dramatic retreat across no man's land. 32nd Battalion had attacked opposite Delandre Farm, on the extreme left of 5th Division's front. The fighting here had been savage. Delandre Farm had been wiped from the map as the isolated battalion fought off repeated German counterattacks. Conditions were so deplorable that the 32nd had resorted to using dead Germans for sandbags. When the Bavarians caught wind of this, no clemency was shown. By 2.15am, the Bavarians had encircled the Australians from the north and west. A vicious counterattack had pushed the neighboring 29th Battalion back across no man's land. The 150 survivors from 32nd Battalion were isolated and surrounded. Knowing it was their only hope of escape, the exhausted troops gathered their last bit of energy and attacked the Bavarians from the rear. Fighting hand to hand, they punched their way through into no man's land and miraculously made it back to British lines. Elsewhere along the front, pockets of resistance continued to hold out, but by 5am on July 20th, any survivors were killed or taken prisoner. By dawn on July 20th, Fromel's was quiet again. Meanwhile at Delville Wood, the South Africans were faced with annihilation. By daybreak on July 20th, the situation at Delville Wood had deteriorated. The South Africans had endured shelling from three sides, and repeated German counterattacks from the north, west, and east. Most of the brigade had retreated to a corner near Longaval, but mixed units were scattered throughout the wood. It was total chaos. Artillery had uprooted the trees, stripped vegetation, and left the once splendid landscape a wasteland of shattered trees and corpses. The dead were everywhere, some piled in heaps and others hanging from branches. The grand monarchs of the wood lay like fallen giants, preventing the arrival of reinforcements who found it impossible to navigate the putrid field. 3rd Battalion had been overrun the previous morning, while 1st and 2nd Battalions continued to fight in isolated pockets. Command of the brigade had now passed to Lieutenant Colonel Edward Thackeray from 3rd Battalion, whose spirited leadership during these dreadful hours would later earn him the Distinguished Service Order. Thackeray, a 46-year-old from Johannesburg, had rallied survivors from the various units near Buchanan Street. We were shelled from all sides. At times, men were killed next to me while I was talking to them. Although I always had ammunition, the rain and mud got into our rifle bolts and caused them to jam, recalled a 3rd Battalion survivor. The heroic last stand began the night of July 19th, when the Germans launched a furious counterattack. Thackeray and his band held out against all odds. They were constantly under attack, as the Germans threw everything they had at the South Africans.
According to witnesses, Thackeray fought like a common soldier, using rifle and bayonet, shouting the Springbok war cry, and inspiring his men. Second Lieutenant Edward Phillips describes the action. Quote, On the night of July 19th, when the enemy massed and assaulted our lines, Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray jumped onto the Parados and threw hand grenades. And when the enemy's grenades exploded, throwing him into the trenches, he immediately got up and continued throwing grenades until the enemy's attacks were repelled. End quote. Phillips credits Thackeray's leadership in encouraging the men to stick it out. In my opinion, he later wrote, had Thackeray not shown his total disregard of danger, our men would not have fought the way they did in Delville Wood. However, the Germans kept coming, and by dawn on July 20th, the order was finally given to evacuate the wood. Lance Corporal Joey Pattison, from 1st Battalion, was one of the first to leave the wood. Quote, We were given the order that all South Africans had to leave the firing line and return to our old starting position of the 14th. I shall never forget that day as long as I live. Shells were still flying round, as they had done the first day. And as I looked back at the wood, where nearly all my best pals lay, and my own brother, I was so weak that tears fell, and I took another man's arms and helped each other out of it. End quote. By 6 p.m. on July 20th, Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray, 2nd Lieutenant Phillips, and 140 men left the wood. The Norfolk Regiment was sent up to relieve them, and as they passed each other on the roads, the Norfolks could only weep in disbelief. Bone-weary, bewildered, and caked in mud, the depleted brigade pulled back. In the words of one survivor, only when they were picked up by waiting trucks did they realize they had been through the Valley of Death. The battles of Fromel's and Delville Wood ended within hours of each other, and the recriminations began almost immediately. I mentioned earlier, critics of the battles insist they were suicide missions, assigned to South Africans and Australians by their evil English overlords. As Patrick Lindsay writes, the driving force behind these uninformed plans to attack Fromel's was the same British general who had previously tried twice to take the Albert Ridge, both at enormous cost and both without success. Such criticisms, however, fall short of the mark. Although Lindsay is referring to Formel's, the same argument has been made about Delville Wood. After all, it had been just five days since the capture of the Metz Wood, so why did British command make the same mistakes? But rather than question why battle proceeded, critics of the actions should explain what factors existed to justify their cancellation especially when you consider the wider context of the song. Of the two, Delville Wood is the clearer cut. The South Africans failed to secure the wood, and had paid a horrific cost. 3,150 men attacked on the first day, and only 720 survived. So complete was the devastation that Delville Wood was henceforth renamed Devil's Wood. Hindsight would tell us that the battle was a fruitless endeavor. Any territory gained was disproportionate to the number of dead and wounded. Since the lines did not move, the battle can only be seen as a failure. However, Devil's Wood was a battle that had to be fought, and any strategist looking at a map would have noticed the benefits of securing it. For the same reasons as Mamets, 
the Somme woods had to be taken if the main advance was to continue. It also would have provided access to the Longval Jinji Road, allowing Anglo-French forces to fight side by side. In short, avoiding these woods was not an option, because they formed part of the German defenses. They were impossible to go around, so the only option was to clear them out. Although Delville Wood would not be secure for another two months, in context of July 1916, it made perfect sense to attack it, especially since it was integral to 4th Army's hold on the Byzantine Ridge. Fromel's, on the other hand, remained steeped in controversy, largely because it was nowhere near the Somme. It stands out for this reason, and the horrible loss of life has created an emotional revulsion which is difficult to overturn. The 5th Australian Division took 5,500 casualties, while the oft-overlooked 61st Midland Division lost 1,550 of their own in the battle. The real reason behind the operation has been forgotten. History regards it as a failed assault on the Albert Ridge by an obsessed general, forgetting that it was really a feint attack, its purpose being to prevent German reserves from being sent to the Somme. Thus, Fromales can only be judged on the merits of what it was designed to do. So the question now becomes, did it stop the flow of German reinforcements? Recent evidence has shown that the battle did produce results. Roger Lee and Mike Sr., a pair of leading experts on the Anzacs, argued that the battle was a strategic success. Overall, the operation pinned six German divisions in the Lille sector for up to nine weeks. In terms of that aim, therefore, the battle succeeded. So if Fromels can be judged a success, then what about Haking? Does this absolve his reputation, or is he still a bungling buffoon? Haking's biographer, Mike Sr., argues that the revulsion of Haking has been overdone, and that the time has come for a balanced, objective judgment of the man. It has often been asked if Haking expected too much from his infantry. We know his divisions were inexperienced, but did he set the bar too high? In the opinion of this humble podcaster, the answer is no. The battle plan was nothing complex or out of the ordinary. It was a small-scale effort, fought far away from the main assault. If the divisions needed to gain combat experience, these types of operations were perfect for that task. However, Haking does deserve blame for his handling of certain aspects. For one, his decision to allow men and material to move in daylight stands out. He also should have recognized that without adequate air surveillance, his gunners would not know the location of the German batteries. But far and away, his most crucial misstep was failing to assign the Sugarloaf salient to a single brigade. Using two brigades from two divisions was just plain oversight on his part. Sure, battalion communications plagued the attackers, but Haking did not do himself any favors by not consolidating command of his brigades, especially since they were assigned the same objective. This remains a real head-scratcher. The salient dominated the battlefield. Haking knew this, and for that, he cannot escape responsibility. In defense of the battle, there is one more factor which often gets overlooked, and that is Rawlinson's assault on the Byzantine Ridge. The success of Rawlinson's attack was encouraging for a number of reasons. It showed that limited bite-and-hold operations could be successful and could be launched without spending weeks at the drawing board. Now granted, 
The German defences at Byzantine were not as layered as they were at Fromel's, but the impressive showing of 4th Army in that effort was like a ray of sunshine on an otherwise befuddled BEF. Looking at what Rawlinson did at Byzantine, Hagen can be forgiven for being optimistic of his chances. Next week, I've decided to change things up a bit. Since we began discussing the Somme, we spent a good deal of time picking our way through events following July the 1st. This marks our 10th episode on the campaign since Into the Breach Part 1, and I'm starting to feel like we're treading water just a bit. So next week will be our last episode on the Somme before we head off to other ventures. August 1916 saw some important developments elsewhere, and I want to get a head start on that so we can have a smoother transition. Episode 57 will see the Somme come full circle. On July 29th, the Australians would capture the village of Pozier, fulfilling an objective first given to Third Corps on July the 1st. It would cap off a brutal month for British forces. But the sacrifices on the Somme, Verdun, and in Galicia had not gone unnoticed by the remaining neutrals. In the east, one neutral country was about to throw her lot in with the Allies. Although small, Romania's entry in the war would have dramatic consequences. Not only did it alter the power balance in the Balkans, it would signal the downfall of Erich von Falkenhayn. That's it for this week. Be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow us on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or reach us through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you are enjoying the show and want to help us out, there are a couple of ways to get involved. You can make a one-time donation through the homepage, which goes to help cover the cost of hosting and acquiring new sources. Another way to get involved is to go to iTunes and write a five-star review iTunes charts their podcast based on the number of user reviews, so the more feedback we have, the higher we'll place. This will help keep us afloat in the rankings and help attract new listeners. This has been episode 56 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.